Well, welcome back. Um, this is the third part of the series. Um, are you ready? Just a quick recap of what we spoke about last time. Um, we briefly touched on the covenantal relationship with God and um, his people and why that mattered. Uh, today we're going to go a little deeper into that and kind of really expand and expound on what that means and why that's so important um, for the story of where we're really leading with this, which is the, the book of Daniel and, and the last uh, two chapters, specifically the chapter 11, uh, verses 31 to 45, and then just the beginning of 12, which speaks about the end times. And uh, I, I wanna, I'm kind of building to that by giving... These first two, uh, three actually podcasts more in terms of context and just trying to get us to kind of really get our heads around why the book of Daniel and specifically those um, those segments are so important to the overall theme of where we're going with this. And that is that if to say that we are in times right now that, you know, we know that this is an unusual time in history, in modern history as we know it. Um, with the pandemic, COVID-19, all the things that are going on, the wildfires in California and then up in the West, the uh, crazy anomalies and weather and the, and things are happening overseas as well. Um, and it just uh, a, 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 a large amount of things that are happening. And, you know, when we talk about this, we talk about some of the things that were happening in, in Matthew when, uh, when Jesus was asked about the last days. And um, he was, speaks there about in the last days there will be rumors of wars and a great many uh, tribulations of of various kinds and natural disasters and so forth um, and I think actually it's I believe in um, Matthew 24 4 he answered that and he was speaking and I will quote and, and you he will hear of wars and rumors of wars see that you are not alarmed for this must take place but the end is not yet and nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom and there will be famines earthquakes in various places but all these are but the beginnings of birth pains and what he's talking about there of course is the great tribulation <clears throat> which precedes his, his 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 final return and it would be fair to say that when we look at what's happening today and we see uh, the amount of natural disasters and things that are happening this could well be the beginnings the beginnings of the beginnings of those birth pains not the labor but the beginnings of the beginnings of the birthplace. And what, so what we're trying to kind of parcel out and, and just kind of, you know, pull apart here is to figure out if that is the case, who are we supposed to be? You know, this, I, I don't want this to turn into some sort of, oh, well, let's figure out the exact dates and times and let's get, you know, that's not, that's not what this is. This is not a, we're going to figure out when the end of times is so we can go ahead and prep and get ourselves in a nice cellar and, just, no, that's not what this is. The, what we're kind of trying to do is figure out if this is the beginning of the beginnings of the beginnings of the birth pains. Uh, who are we as Christians? And what are we supposed to be doing about it? And how are we supposed to be representing ourselves before God and other people? I, I have a query that I, as a question I put out and I heard one time being asked. And then that is if there's a young man in Germany. He's just out of university. And it's 1929. And as he's just preparing for his life, he's looking at things and he's thinking to himself, what am I to do? And he hears about a young man um, named Adolf Hitler. It's a young Austrian man who's running for election, running for to be elected. And, uh, and it, of course, it turns out that, you know, it's not a big deal. It's in the papers, but he doesn't know this person. He doesn't really think about it that much. As a matter of fact, he doesn't win the election. And is basically forgotten about, and he gets on with his life. You know, he ends up getting married, and, and and you know, just doing life. And then, four years later, this 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 man comes back on the scene and runs for election again and wins, and within three months becomes a dictator, and within a period of two to three years starts World War Two, in which over six million Jews were killed in the Holocaust. And worldwide, 50 million people are killed. And if we could go, if he could go back in time, knowing that when he heard about this young man called Adolf Hitler, if he had known what he'd known after that time, how would he have been? Would he have, been, would he have acted differently about his life? 
And kind of that's kind of where I think we want to go with this. We're trying to figure out that this is the beginnings of the beginnings, and this is something that we're looking at. And we're saying, is this the beginning of the end times? And as Christians, that we, we you know you have a lot of people throughout history have talked about the end times, quote unquote. And it's it's almost gotten kooky, right? We got the we, we got everything from the person that's on the side of the of the street with with the plaque. I, the end of the world is coming, you know, to people, you know, starting cults and waiting out in the field for the certain day for Christ to return. That's not what this is. Okay. That's not what we're doing. But we does, it does say very clearly in Matthew that when, when Jesus is asked, he, he says something very specific. And he's really saying, look out. Okay. Be aware. Um, and he refers to Daniel, which is interesting because uh, I'm not going to read. I think sometimes the best thing to do is just read it. And so I'll read some of this to you and then we can take it from there. As Jesus left the temple and was going away, when his disciples came to the point out to him the buildings of the temple, he answered them, you see all these you do not. Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us when these things will be, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age. And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying that I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the be- but the beginnings of birth pains. And then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will increase, and the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures, and this is important, the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. And then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let the one who is on the housetop, not go down to, to, what, to take what's in his house. And it goes on to expound about what we should be doing and who we should be. When the key ingredient there is the one who endures to the end will be saved. Okay? That's really the key of what this podcast is all about. We don't want to be a generation of believers that's caught by surprise if this is the end times, by these things, okay? We want to be prepared. We want to be spiritually prepared and ready to answer the call for the challenges that this season will bring, okay? And it's important that we have to understand that this doesn't mean we have to become sensationalists or kooky about it or you know, try to figure out what the day of that time is coming. Because it actually clearly says, he says, no one knows the day or the hour. Only God knows. So it's not for us to figure out the specific details of exactly when and how and where. That's not what this is. And I know a lot of the reasons that people are turned off by a lot of these, this the end time eschatology is because it has turned into this sort of weird cultic, has a sort of a, you know, it's almost like it's, it's gotten to put, be put on the fringes. But let me ask you this. If this is the end times and the enemy who's the rule of this world is letting us go into that without knowing what it really means, wouldn't that be one of the things that he does? That he would have us so distracted and it would have this information so marginalized that we wouldn't even think about it anymore. That we, when we hear about it, matter of fact, we roll our eyes and go, oh gosh, you know, whatever, you know. Um, it, it's important for us to realize that Christ was asked this question and it made it, he spent a great amount of time discussing this. And he refers to Daniel. 
And there's another person in the Bible in the New Testament who's a very pivotal character in the New Testament, and that's Paul. And he also refers to Daniel, which specifically in the passages where we're going to discuss, which is 1131 to 45, all the way to the middle of 12, he talks about Daniel's prophecy and the end times. And so what we're going to do now is we're going to kind of go back a little bit and set up some context why prophecy, which has been sort of marginalized and in some liberal circles almost dispelled as the age is past of prophecy. Well, I, I'm, I'm going to challenge that. I'm going to come here and tell you right now that if that's the case, three quarters of the Bible is actually prophecy. Okay, so clearly it's something that God finds of great value to us because he does not want us to go blind into the future. He wants us to have an idea of what we need to know, not necessarily right to the nitty gritty. There will always be mysteries, but to have an idea of the times that we live in so we can respond appropriately, okay? So that's important. We have to know when the bridegroom is coming. We, we need to be aware that we keep an eye out for those times. As it says in Matthew 25, uh, verse, uh, verse 12, and this is after the virgins, and I'm sure now some of you know this story, you know, the 12 virgins who, they five went in, uh, not 12, excuse me, the 10 virgins, five went in, and five had extra lamps, so when the oil went out, they were able to go into the banquet, and the other five who didn't have the extra oil were left outside. And we, we read that story, we read a story of preparation. It's, that's really what the parable is about. It's about being ready. And so, at the, in verse 12, Jesus answers, he says, the answer is, Truly I say to you, I do not know you, watch therefore, therefore, watch therefore, for you know not neither, neither the day nor the hour of the kingdom of heaven. Now that's important. For it would be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and trusted him to his property. And then he talks about the five talents. And that whole parable there is also about being ready and being aware and keeping an eye out. So when the time comes, you're not caught off guard, okay? And so I want to go back and I want to go back and expound a little bit on why we find ourselves talking to Daniel about Daniel and, and, and why in Daniel... As he is, is, it's almost the most pivotal moment of prophecy about the end times. But I want to put this forward. That is not the first time that prophecy is really expounded upon in the Bible. In fact, throughout the Bible, God speaks about things that will happen to Israel. Now remember, Daniel's in Babylon. He has been exiled with the, with the, with the exiles. He is in the court of the king. And he has this visions, series of visions. And what he's asking about when he's fasted for a few days and, and the angel comes to him and speaks to him, he's asking about Israel's future. And we went and we talked about last week why Israel is so important. It's because the covenantal relationship that Israel has with God, and specifically because God has chosen Israel to be his chosen people, and that is through Israel he will bless the nations. And so when we look back last time on all the things that were happening to Israel, we understand that because Israel has a special place in God's design, that the enemy has throughout history persecuted him for that reality. And we can go into why and how, but I don't want to kind of get off too far off that. I want to kind of focus on more the covenants specifically, what God has promised Israel, what they did as a consequence of those promises, why the things that happened happened, and what the restoration looked like, which we also focused on last week, the last time, excuse me. And I want to kind of get into the setting up the, the story of Daniel and how this all comes and plays out. So let's let's begin at the beginning. We'll start with the covenants, and this is important. There are specifically eight covenants. Um, there are a few very famous ones, but to, to really establish a union between all of them, which is the thread throughout the Bible, we will have to start with the Edenic Covenant, which is the Edenic Rule. And this, is the speak, this, is the, this speaks of the, the, the creation of Adam. And in, in Genesis 2.15, it talks about when Adam was, 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 was created, he was to rule, right? He was to rule over the works 
of of the of the of the of the land of of the of of, the, of God's hand. Um, you made them rulers. This is Psalm eight six. You made them rulers over the work of your hands. You put everything under their feet. Okay, and God had done that because He wanted to have a relationship with Adam. He was in the presence of Adam. Adam was walking with him throughout the day. They had a relationship together. We don't know why specifically God wanted to have man created. And we're not going to get into that. But we are clear in the text that God wanted to have a relationship with Adam. Okay? After the fall, and for those of you who don't know what that is, Adam was in the presence of God. Eve came along. She was tempted by the serpent. They were told specifically not to eat of the fruit at a specific tree. It was the fruit of knowledge of good and evil. They ate it, and because of that, they disobeyed God. And as a, as a result, they were removed from the Garden of Eden. And this is called the Great Fall. And it's in Genesis 3.15, we hear about the Adamic redemption, okay? And... What is the Edemic redemption? Well, when Adam was in the Garden of Eden with Eve, they had a perfect relationship with God. It was a union that was pure and complete and perfect. There was no sin in the world. When the disobedience happened, sin was introduced. And sin, as we know now, leads to death. And so in Genesis 3.15, God declares something. A covenant is basically a it's it's almost a legal statement, if you will, between two party two parties. That's the idea of covenant. So God has declared something. Now it's not conditional. He's just declaring it. And what he says is, I will put enmity enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And he sees he's talking about the serpent. This is the 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 the, the 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 tempter, if you will. And so, as a result, there's a now a separation between God and man through because of sin. In fact, it gets so bad that as humankind starts to spread across the known uh, that world, known world at the time, there is so much sin and that there's so much evil that it grieves God so much that he de he decides in Genesis six to get rid of mankind, that he regrets having created man. But in that instant, he also makes a way out and he communicates with, with a man called Noah. And I, I want to say, for some of you, this is old news. Some of maybe this is a, a rehash. Some of you, this might be new. So I have to kind of go through this a broad context to kind of give you an idea of where we are. Anyway, after Noah and the Great Flood, which I'm sure a lot of you know about, which is you know, Noah's Ark and the animals are going two by two, there's a great flood, and all of man is destroyed except Noah and his family. And it grieves God so much that he makes another covenant. And what he says is, I will never remove man by flood, this is important, from the face of the land. And I'll read it. I will blot, I, I, I will, um, well, let me, let me scroll down. Let me not get ahead of myself here. He says, in 6, 7, he says, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creepy things and the birds of the heavens, for I am sorry I have made them, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. All right? So he, 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 he gets rid of all of man. And then further down, in eight twenty, God makes a covenant with Noah. And then Noah built the altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal, some of every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither, neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. All right? So he makes a covenant. That he will never, ever remove the creatures of the earth ever again. In fact, he has a rainbow as a reminder that he puts in, 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 the, in the sky to remind him. It's a symbolic reminder of the promise he made to Noah. That's the third 
covenant. Now, we move further on and we come to a situation where there's a still a break between man and God. And because of the first um, break of God with Adam, there has to be a reestablishment, if you will, of that relationship. So God, he introduces a character called Abraham. And I don't want to get too much into Abraham. You can always check this, look this up and kind of get into Abraham a little bit. But needless to say, Abraham, who is considered to be the father of Israel, the patriarchal leader of Israel, he is the character now that we will focus on for a minute because he's very important to our story. In Genesis 12, 1 to 3, Abraham is called, and I'll read it out. The Lord said to Abraham, go from my country, your kindred, and your father's house, to the land which I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's key. Okay? That's key. Let me read it again. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So there's a thing here that happens. The call of Abraham speaks about how all the nations will be blessed because of him. And that he will send them to a special land. And this land will be what's later known as the land of Israel. And also in that land will reside the people of Israel. The chosen people of Israel. And what we have to understand that with the Abrahamic covenant, what God is doing is restoring a relationship with humankind. That's the nitty gritty of the entire plot. God, through Abraham, through a chosen people in a specific place where they will reside, will get to know who God is and through the blessings of knowing God, will restore relationship with mankind and God. Okay? And as we go on through the story, we'll find out there's other blessings that he goes through that provide a covenant um, with Abraham. Um, and if we go down to Genesis 15, there's something very specific that happens. And this is what uh, we're going to focus on right now. In 15, and I'll read it to you. <clears throat> Excuse me. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abraham. I am your shield and your reward shall be very great. But Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the hair of my house is Liza of Damascus. And so what you have to understand at this point, Abraham has had no children. And so through his seed to have any kind of possibility of the promise, what God promised him, without children, he couldn't see it happening. But Abraham will have an opportunity to see the goodness of God because God promises, promises him a, a child. Okay? And we go through the story. There was a delay in that uh, coming forth. And, of course, he, he gets Sarai, becomes frustrated, gets Abraham to sleep with Hagar. And Hagar bears a son. And... This turns into a real mess. We'll talk about that later on in, in the podcast of what, how that fateful decision has changed human history forever. Um, but needless to say, Abraham, even later in his years, 90 or so years, and Sarah, very old, who shouldn't have a child, ends up having a child called Isaac. And when that happens... One of the prominent, one of the, one of the one of the one of the promises of God is fulfilled, and when it, Isaac was promised, it was something that seemed impossible to happen, but the Lord predicted it. In other words, the Lord, at the very first moment in time, prophesied to man about something that He was going to do, and what's really interesting about this, He promised, prophesied this. To Abraham. And if you look in the passages, as Paul speaks about Abraham, he says that through Abraham, that the Levitical priesthood was a type. Because 
when he goes to Melchizedek, he gives a tenth of his spoils after he went to go rescue his family members to a, a, a character, a priestly character called Melchizedek. And that the Levitical priesthood is a, is, was a following the type of Abraham. So Abraham, in that statement, is the, is the embodiment of Israel in one man. He's the father of Israel. And God had, for the first time, prophesied to Israel through this act of Abraham. By telling Abraham that he will bear a son. And that by doing that, even though it seemed impossible, he would bless the nations. And I'll read it to you. I, I, in, I, in, in, in Genesis excuse me, 17, 15. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarah your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her name, by her. I will bless her, and she shall become, become this is key, nations. Kings of people shall come from her. And then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant. Now, look, this is important because we have to understand God is eternal. So when God uses the word everlasting, he's speaking about himself in an eternal context. In other words, it's going to be unchangeable for eternity. Okay? So he's saying, I am going to establish an eternal covenant for Abraham's offspring. In other words, Israel's offsprings and the people of Israel who will be blessed because of Israel's offspring for all time. Okay? That's very important. Get that. It's very important. And he goes further on to say it about Ishmael, who of course we know comes from Hagar, and speaks about how he also will multiply, multiply, he will multiply him greatly, and he will make him also into a great nation, which we will find out later is, the, is something that's very important in Daniel. But I will establish, and this is important, my covenant which is the covenant we just spoke of, with Isaac. Okay? So that's the Abrahamic covenant. In fact, when Isaac, at one point, God is testing Abraham, and he asks him to sacrifice Isaac, and Abraham does so. He's ready to do it, believing that he could always restore um, Isaac, even if he's killed. And it's a great act of faith. And through that, he reaffirms his covenantial promise to Abraham. So we have here the promise of restoration of relationship with man and God through a singular man who then will, his, through his people, the land of Israel, will then have a people called the Jews who will be a blessing, be blessing not only to them from God, but a blessing to the nations. That's the key thing. All right? Because remember, through Adam, God will be in the presence of Adam, and that will be a blessing. And the enemy, the serpent, was envious of that relationship, which is why he deceived Eve and Adam to separate and create the split between God and man. But what God is doing now is reestablishing that relationship. We go further on to the Mosaic Covenant. And this is where... After many years, the Jews are now in a place called Egypt. They have become a tribe. They are huge in number. They are actually now 12 tribes. And we have to go through the Old Testament to really understand how that all unfolds. But needless to say, this people, known as the Jews now, are in a place of captivity in Egypt. And they're enslaved. And they're crying out to God, help us. 
So he sends a deliverer, and that deliverer is Moses. And through Moses, <clears throat> we know of the, the great plagues and how Moses brought them out of Egypt. And it's through that process of bringing them out of Egypt that he's taking them to what? The promised land. It's called the promised land because it's the land promised to Abraham. And through Abraham that they would then receive this land as a people and be revealed to God. And God reveal reveal himself to these people. And so when Abraham takes them out of Egypt, he brings them to the, to the borders of the promised land. God, through Moses, goes up and creates an opportunity for them to find out who God is. Okay? So there are three things that happen here. Moses comes down, brings the Ten Commandments. We know what happens there. They, they end up doing silly things and... Well, not silly things, terrible things. They end up having a calf because he's gone for so long and he comes down and they start doing idol worship because cause they, you have to understand, they have come from a, a, a pagan worshiping system. And so their default is to go with something that they can see, right? Instead of sort of understanding who God is, they go to creating something that they can then embrace to deliver them, if you will, which is a total slap on the face because this unseen God has delivered them out of Israel, out of Egypt and now they want to go back to the place what they've been delivered from and are serving the gods that didn't help them throughout the entire time they were there. So it's, it's, it's really ironic and quite frankly, very disturbing. So as Moses comes down, he gets very angry, destroys the tablets and we go back and he then comes back again. He gives them the tablets and for the first time, as he's given the Israelites the Ten Commandments, he is doing something very unique. He is creating another covenant. And it's the covenant of revelation. What God is speaking to them, and this is the Leviticus 26, of the things that he's going to do in relationship with his people, the Jews. And he asks of them certain things for the first time, and they are to respond in kind. And then through those things, if they would keep those commandments, they would also then benefit from the relationship. If they did not keep those commandments, they would then be cursed and would have consequences. And the key ingredients, of course, is have no other gods before me, keep the Sabbath and keep it holy, and keep the laws and keep the commands, okay? So this is the first time where Moses reveals a covenant that is conditional, all right? Up to this point, God has simply given covenants that are dependent upon his eternal providence. He's not requiring man to do anything, but now he's asking once again, man to be engaged in the relationship with him. And that's why mosaics, the Mosaic Covenant is called the Covenant Revelation. We go on further that we know what happens after that, and I'm going to take a moment here for you just to take a break, uh, discuss that with yourselves, look at some of these passages, and... Um, we will be right back.
So as we continue on now, we're going to look at some uh, of the other passage, other passages, as it relates to the covenants. Um, in Deuteronomy 29 and 30, what's happened is Moses is about to go up to the mountain and and die, and he reiterates the promise of God um, and uh, tells the people about how they will receive the land and how they are the seed and how they will be a blessing to other nations if they know God. However, because this is a conditional thing, in other words, if they obey the commandments, keep the Sabbath and keep it holy and serve no other gods, there would be a, a series of blessings that would be given to them. However, if they did not do that, there would be a series of curses. And what we have in Deuteronomy 27, uh, 28, 29, and 30 are these, are these blessings and curses. And I won't go through those. I, I encourage you to go look through those. But one thing that's very specific about these uh, curses is that if they continue to do the things that God commands them not to do, that they will be sent into exile. And they would be a persecuted people. Um, and this is something that God prophesies through through Moses to his people. And as we, as we know throughout time, that's exactly what the Israelites do. They follow other gods. They do not obey the Sabbath. And they do break a lot of the laws. Um, and so at one point, when Israel is split in two, which becomes a northern kingdom um, of Israel, which is the, uh, which is, Ten tribes, and then the other two tribes being Benjamin and Judah in the south. After a series of bad kings in the north, Israel, under under the oppression of the Assyrians, is exiled. So that becomes a fulfillment of the of the a prophecy or covenant, if you will, of God saying that if you disobey my laws, you will be exiled. Later on, the southern kingdom of Judah has exactly the same thing happen to it. Under the uh, under the advances and the attack of the Babylonians, and this is where we find Daniel in Babylon during the period of the first exile. Now, the first exile of Judah. I do want to clarify that. And so, we have a situation now where God has made a covenantal agreement. They've broken it, and they are now in exile. But as this is unfolding, it also speaks about. That if they obey or they repent, that they would be returned to the land. And keep in mind, in Abraham, when we talked about the covenant of how Israel would have the land, it was what we call an eternal covenant. In other words, God did not require man to keep his promise. So when he said that, he was going to at some point restore Israel to the land. That's very important to understand. Okay? So when that happened... Was, would be determined by a series of prophecies. So Israel now on as a nation is in exile, and they finally do come back to the land actually many years later. They occupy under the Roman Empire, they're, they're under occupation, but they are in Palestine. They have returned. And we know through Ezra and the rebuilding of the second temple that this was over a period of certain amount of years. Um, I can't go into that in detail right now, but I can tell you at one point, Israel is back in the land. Now, we have to go back a little bit now and talk about these kings of Israel. There was a king whose name was David. And when the Israel was united as a kingdom, he was the second king after Saul. And he was a king after God's own heart. And what he loved about David was that because he was after his own heart, he had a heart that Adam should have had. He had a heart that he wanted to his people to have. He had a heart that followed after him and honored him. And so David, at one point, is promised to bear a seed. That through his reign, that God will bear a seed, a man who would fulfill the promises of restoration, not only to Israel, but all the peoples. And as we know further down the line, that man will be Jesus. And so he establishes three main promises in 2 Samuel 7, 12 to 16. He establishes the promise of a throne that would be forever. I, you know what I'm going to do? 
I'm gonna actually read this. We are kind of getting a little short on time. I didn't want this to drag out as much as it has because we have a lot to go over. But let me read this to you. In 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel 7, 12 to 16, when your days are fulfilled and you lie, you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, who I put away from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever. Once again, we have that word forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with these words and in accordance with all of these visions. Nathan spoke to David. So we have a covenantal, uh, a, a covenantal, uh, once again, unconditional covenant with David, and that he would establish through David a kingdom that would last forever. And we understand the fulfillment of that kingdom came through Jesus, and because Jesus was in the line of David, he would be a king that would rule forever. And through his kingdom, in Jeremiah 31, 27 to 34, we talk about there's a new covenant that is established. And this covenant would reunite man through this one man to himself. And that they would know him. And that he would, in Joel, transform their hearts. So no one no longer would a man have to say, who know the Lord? They shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. So that is the eighth covenant. The covenant of regeneration through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and his restoration of the people, that those who abide in him shall know God and God shall know them. And so these are the foundations of the covenants. And why we have to understand they're important will be made clear as we go through Daniel. But let's go through some more understanding of what all this means. Because in 70 AD, after a series of events and rebellions, the Roman Empire created a situation where they were so fed up with the rebellion that when they burned the second temple, they scattered the Jews out of Israel. In fact, the Jews scattered throughout all of north, northern um, Mediterranean, all the way west and all the way east. And this was called the Great Diaspora. And as we know that when the Jews did not obey God, and of course, we understand that the Jews crucified Jesus. And so that was a final example of disobedience, that they were scattered. And it would be something that they would do. And God would have to deal with them as a people for their disobedience through the exiling of them as a people. And as I go through this, I'm going to try to go through this fairly quickly. But what the great diaspora also created was a series of, 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 of prophecies that had been, had been prophesied many years earlier about what that would look like for the people of Israel and how they would be restored to the land. Because as we said before, God promised Abraham that they would have a land that would last forever and that there would be a people that would be in his presence forever and there would be a people that will bless the nations and through them God would know who they would know who God is. So if they're spread all over the world and they're not in the land of Israel anymore, how does that look for his promise, his covenantal promise? Well, that's where prophecy comes in. Because what God decided to do was make a series of promises through his prophets throughout this period. There is no people in out history that have been scattered the way the, Israel, the way the nation of Israel was scattered that has kept their language, kept their religion, kept their culture, past two generations, let alone being restored to their land. There is no ancient peoples. It's not happened throughout human history. But God predicted certain things that would happen to them, but they would, they would, they would be restored if they repented. And that's where prophecy is so important because we have to understand that prophecy is a completion of the promises of God to man by establishing Promises that will, could be looked forward to to allow us to act accordingly to those promises. In other words, when the Jews who were in the gas chamber during World War II were getting slaughtered by the millions, there was a rabbi who was asked, 
he, he had made the comment before they were going to the gas chamber, Rabbi, what if you were told that in a few years, these people will no longer be at the other side of this gun, but they will be holding the gun, that they will be restored to the land of their original origin, and that they will be a people again in their own land, with their own language, and their own culture. And he said, he, he laughed and said, well, I, you wouldn't have had to send me into the chamber. I would have died laughing. Because that's how bad it got. And we went through last time how Israel, as the people of Jews, have been persecuted throughout history. But it got so bad that in modern day times, in 1940 to 1945, it looked really bad for Jews. And it had been bad for Jews. But God had made a promise to them. And it says in, 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 in Hosea 6.1, it says to them, it says, Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but will he not heal us? He has injured us, but he will, be, he will, but he will blind up our, bind up our wounds. And also, it talks about um, in Ezekiel 20.30, I will bring you from nations and gather you from countries where you have been scattered with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm with outpoured wrath. And also, in Isaiah 11, 11 to 12, in that day, the Lord will reach out his hand the second time to reclaim the remnant that is left of his people from Assyria, from the lower Egypt, from upper Egypt, from Cush, from all the nations around the world, and he will gather them back in. I'm not going to be able to go through all these today because I think we, we, I'm going to have to break this up. But needless to say, as we've spoke about in the previous um, podcast, in 1948, May, 4, May 14th, 1948, Ben Ben-Gurion reestablished the nation of Israel through a series of events after the Second World War when the English had occupied that part of the world after the defeat of the Ottomans during World War I. England, sorry, Great Britain had control over Palestine. And through a series of, 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 of communications through the UN and so many Jews being in the land already, they had made officially the statement through the Balfour Accords that Israel should share the land with the Palestinians. And of course there was a great backlash by the Arabs at the time who we know now are the descendants of Hagar and Ishmael, and that's another topic, but we will address that. And they are now been told that they cannot do it. But well, that day, Ben Ben-Gurion went ahead and, and took the UN resolution and declared that Israel would be a nation. And they became a nation because the powers that be at the time agreed to it. Okay? And it had been prophesied that Israel would be reborn in a day. In fact, in Isaiah 66.8, who has ever heard of such a thing? <clears throat> Excuse me. Who has ever seen such a thing? Can a country be born in a day or a nation be brought forth in a moment? Yet no sooner is Zion in labor than she gives her birth to her children. So in one day, the nation of Israel was established just three years after the termination of World War II when the Jews were being sent to the gas chamber by the millions. They had been restored to their land as a people and it was an incredible feat. It was a miracle. But it had been prophesied by God. It was prophesied. Also, it was prophesied in Zephaniah 3.8 there would be a pure language spoken by the Israelis. They would return and speak their language of Hebrew. Now, Hebrew was an ancient language. And so at the time of their return to Israel, very few Jews spoke, a handful spoke ancient Hebrew. They were scholars. Most Jews either spoke a dialect of Hebrew, which was called Yiddish, or they spoke the native tongue of where they were from either Russia, Europe, America. So Hebrew had to be retaught. And not only had to be retaught, it had to be sort of transformed into the modern context because there was no, there was no word for electricity in ancient Hebrew. But did you know that they did that? They taught the people Hebrew again? That if you go to Israel today, the native tongue of all Israels, 
Israelis, excuse me, all Jews in Israel is Hebrew. Matter of fact, if you are, if you are leaving a country and wanting to repatriate to Israel as a Jewish citizen, you can receive six months of free teaching of the Hebrew language. And guess what? It was predicted in the Bible in Zephaniah hundreds of years ago, prior to that happening. Thousands, actually, not hundreds, thousands of years, 2,000 years before that that would happen. Did you know also in Ezekiel 45, 12 to 16, the shekel would be reestablished? Well, guess what? The sh guess what? The shekel is now reestablished as the currency of Israel and of the Jews. It was, a, it was a prophesied in Jeremiah 32, 44, that fields will be bought for silver and deeds will be signed and sealed and witnessed in the territory of Benjamin. Well, guess what? When the Jews came back, they would stop buying back the land. And that's what happened. In the mid-40s, and the late 40s, the, 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 the settlements were there. They would buy back the land. It was predicted. It was prophesied. Another thing that you have to understand, it was prophesied that when the, when the Israelites left the promised land, that the land would remain desolate. That it would remain abandoned until they returned. Well, by the time Israel returned in 1948, well, they were there prior to that. In the 40s, in the 40, 46, 47, 48, they were already there. But the land was desolate. It was, it was desert. The Negev desert was a desert. It was malaria infested. The people that actually resided with the Palestinians or the Arabs, they were nomads. So they didn't farm the land. They never did any agriculture. Well, when the Jews came back and they started settlements, they immediately went on to irrigate the land and fertilize the land. So that to the point where you go to Israel today, Israel is a great exporter of, of fruits uh, uh, of, of all kinds of produce. Matter of fact, I lived in Greece for 15 years and one of the exports of Greece is, is olive oil. But did you know one of the biggest competitors of olive oil and some of the finest olive oil in the world comes from Israel? It's, a, it's extraordinary. But yet, 2,000 years prior to that happening, it was prophesied that that's exactly what would happen. Okay? That they would return and that they would be a productive people. In Isaiah 26.6, in the days to come, Jacob will take root, Israel will bud and blossom, and fill all the world, all the world with fruit. It happened. Isaiah 35.1-2, the desert and the parched land will be glad, the wilderness will rejoice and blossom like the co-crocus, it will burst into bloom, it will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. And that's what it is today. So what God was doing through all these prophecies was reminding the people that even if you go to the farthest edges of the world, which is, which is exactly what happened, that they would be re returned, as we talked about earlier, in the first Abrahamic non-conditional covenant, that they would, one, be returned to the land of Israel, that they would once again be a people, and they would be blessed because they would know who God is. Well, that's what's happened. Now, when we go on further down through Daniel, which is the greatest prophecy of, prophecy of all, as we mentioned earlier, Jesus refers to Daniel. And if you have any idea or any questions about the end times, refer to Daniel. Paul speaks to, to the, the Thessalonians, a new church that he's just birthed. And he, clearly he was there for a short period of time initially. And he had already spoken about the Antichrist and the return of the Antichrist and the promises of what would happen before the end times. And guess what? He verbatim quotes Daniel. So it's fair to say that Daniel is a pivotal and a really important prophecy of the end times. And so we need to look at Daniel in the overall context of prophecy and why it's so relevant to us today and why it matters so much as a whole to figure out what Daniel says about the end times for us and what it means to, for us to look at those things that are written in Daniel. Do they line up with what we're dealing with today? Do they have any kind of is there any similarities? And we need to look at Matthew 24 and 25 and see what Jesus says about the signs of the end times and see how they line up because Daniel is a, in, the, in 11 Daniel to, uh, to 11 uh, 31 to, to Daniel 12, there is a very specific 
series of events that actually have been given times of how the end time, the great tribulation would unfold, and that we could look at certain key events. And to give you a little taste of the next podcast of what that looks like, that before there would be the final return of Christ, there would be a, a, a great season of conflict between a character called the Antichrist. And in that time, he would set up the abomination of desolation in the temple. Now keep in mind, to this day, 2020, there is no temple in Jerusalem. In matter of fact, on the Temple Mount, there is a, a mosque at that location. So it's fair to say that if there's going to be a abomination of desolation before the Great Tribulation and Christ's return, that there would be a third temple that would have to be built. But guess what? There is no temple. And not only that, up to 1967, when the Israel when Israel declared independence, all the Arab states invaded and fought Israel for a period of a year. And miraculously, this fledgling nation of people defeated all the nations of, of the Arab states and they occupied even more of the land than they were assigned to, which is why the Palestinians were exiled because they became refugees and they took their land, but they never took Jerusalem. And we know that the temple has to be in Jerusalem because that's where the original temple was built and that's where the presence of God filled. That's where he was residing. And so we know that to, for Israel to be restored to the land, they'd also have to capture Jerusalem. And then before they could build a temple, they'd have to, they would have to hold Jerusalem and, and take ownership of Jerusalem. Well, in 1967, there was what's called the Six-Day War. And within those six days, and I, I encourage you to go check it out and find out more about that war. They were able to capture the city of David, Jerusalem. And they have that city under Israeli uh, uh, possession or, or, or occup uh, occupa occupation to this day. So they have the ability now to build a temple in Jerusalem. And only a certain series of things need to happen. In fact, there's a, there's a society of people that have everything in place to do that. Once the temple is built, they have all the artifacts to reestablish um, sacrifice in the ancient temple which would be the third temple in Jerusalem. And this is important because when this happens in Daniel, we see that when that happens, there are certain events that will culminate in that temple that will start the triggering events of the end times, the great tribulation, and finally the return of Christ and the rule and reign for a millennia. And we're going to go into more of that next week. But needless to say, that's important because if these are the beginnings of the beginnings of the beginnings of the birth pains of the end times, who are we supposed to be as believers? What are we supposed to do as believers? What kind of people are we supposed to be? What are we supposed to be spending our time? Because I go back to that question. If the young man had known what the world would look like just 15 years later under Nancy rule, how would he have conducted himself? What would he have done maybe differently? Those are very relevant questions. I will read something to you, Matthew 24. And it's right here when Jesus is speaking about the signs of the beginning of the birth pains. In Matthew 24, um, he says, um, there Matthew 12, Matthew 24, 12, excuse me. And because of lawlessness will increase, the love of many will grow cold. Well, Paul in, expounds on that. He speaks about what lawlessness looks like. And, and I'm going to read this to you. And you tell me if this sounds a little bit familiar in the times we live in. In 2 Timothy 3, 1-6, Paul, Paul identifies what the last days looks like. I'm oh, sorry, Timothy expands on what, what uh, the last days looks like. I, I said Paul, it should be Timothy, excuse me. But understand this, that in the last days, there will come the times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, 
arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having an appearance of godliness but denying its power. These are the beginnings. And many people call this the post-Christian neo-paganist period. But they are written in the Bible as being the beginnings of the beginnings of the beginnings of the end. And the beginning of tribulation. And the end times which are described later on in Daniel. Is it fair to say that a lot of those things we read, and it could be said that throughout history those things have been true of man, because man has been sinful since the fall of Adam. But is it fair to say that this is even more so today than ever any other time in history? That we are more loving ourselves than we've ever done. I mean, Facebook is, in, is endemic of this issue of loving yourself. Instagram and TikTok and all these social media sites that they, they encourage us to love ourselves and, and let other people know how special we are. And how the love of money is so important that it's, it's become the God of our day. And there's how the church as a whole has become almost, it's become so secularized in so many ways that it reflects more what the culture of the time and the day is than what the actual Bible says they should be. Are we living in that time today? Well, that's it for today. I ask you to look over all the texts that I spoke about. We're going to come back next week and we're going to really start diving deeply into Daniel 11 verse 31 to 45, and talk about some very specific things uh, in terms of the Antichrist, the return of this, this one person that is going to be the savior of the world. But I'll leave you with this. The New Age movement is waiting for what they call the Maitreya. That's their Messiah. Fundamentalist Muslims uh, of the Islamic faith, they're waiting for a, a, a man who in this period of lawlessness and, and strife would be called the Mahdi, the Mahdi. I can't pronounce it very well. Excuse my pronunciation. The Buddhists are waiting for what's called the fifth Buddha and Jews are waiting for the advent of the Messiah. To this day, they're still waiting for the Messiah. There's something that's very unique about Christians that is different from all of those people, all those people groups, uh, religions. And that is we're not waiting for the Messiah. We're waiting for the return of the Messiah. And so we're going to expound on that more next time. Uh, are You Ready is a podcast that's uh, going to look at the end times and see where we are and are you ready for them. This is Sonny. Until next time, bye-bye.